morning. Would you please join me in the prayer of illumination? Let us pray. Holy God, author of life, through the power of your Holy Spirit, may we hear and understand what your word has to tell us today. Amen. Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Hear these words. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. If you're just joining us, we've been in the middle of this series as we walk through a book by Henry Nowen called In the Name of Jesus. We've been walking through each chapter a week, and we've been sitting with this text in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, for the past three weeks. So, show of hands, how many of you have heard this text now more than once? Raise your hand. Good. The majority of you. All right. And then some of you have probably read it before. You're familiar with the story. It's in another gospel narrative. It's very short in the gospel of Mark. It's just one verse. Jesus was led into the uh, wilderness to be tempted. That's all it says. Uh, Matthew and Luke give us some more details. And so we think we know the story. Uh, And I want to sit with this a little bit longer. And then later what we're going to do is we're going to dive into the third temptation. But the first thing I want to do is talk about the importance of just sitting with the text, of sitting with Scripture. Because when we sit with it, when we look at it with fresh eyes, things begin to pop out at us. We uh, see things new. You could say that the, the Bible continues to speak to us in all times of our life. I believe that if you sit with this text in 20 years from now, you will still see new things in it. Because the Spirit and the Word of God is alive and active and moving. So, let's sit with this. I want to walk verse by verse. I'm not going to give a sermon on any of these. I'm just going to make some observations. Some fly-by-the-seat-of-my-pants points. Some things to take a look at and say, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. And you can take notes and make your own sermons later on these points if you want. So we'll go to the first verse here. And uh, verse uh, verse 1. Then Jesus was led, oh, we're introduced to our first character. Jesus was led up by the Spirit, our second character, into the 
wilderness. And if that isn't a loaded term, where did the Israelites wander for a number of time? In the wilderness. The wilderness is like not civilization. There's brigands, bandits, wolves, lions, dragons. It's, it's the bad place. You don't want to go there. It's uncharted territory. It's bad, right? We, we forget that the only safe place really is in the cloister of the city. There are roads, if you could call them that, more like paths, that connect these dots of civilization on the map, which didn't really exist. Into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's a fascinating uh, characteristic here. The devil, not devil, but the devil. Interesting. Verse 2. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And if 40 days and 40 nights is not a, a loaded sort of time frame in Scripture, Noah was on the ark for 40 days and 40 nights. The Israelites wander in the wilderness for 40 years. This is a, a long time. This is a long time to go hungry. You could say that the author of, of Matthew is trying to juxtapose Christ in the wilderness and Moses' experience in the wilderness. Where the Israelites fail, Christ will succeed. And afterwards, he was famished. Thanks for that tidbit, Matthew. Very helpful. I assumed he was hungry. Verse 3. The tempter, interesting, not the devil. It'd be interesting to look at the Greek there. Is this the same person? Is this a different person? came and said to him, who's him? We're going to assume Jesus. If you are the son of God, so the tempter knows who this person is, or at least attempting to identify their authority or their personhood. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Verse 4. But he, Jesus, answered, it is written, one does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There's this interesting thing that's happening in the text that Jesus, who is the Word incarnate, the Gospel of John tells us that it's, he's the Word of God. Jesus is the Word. You're going to hear the word play. He is the Word of God. He responds with words about the Word of God, which is Scripture that Jesus knows. Do you see this nuance, this play going on here? You have the Word incarnate responding with the Word. And later, Satan will tempt Jesus with the very Word of God. So Jesus responds with Scripture. says, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. Bread. Bread. What are all the motifs of bread in Scripture? There's bread in the tabernacle all the time, the show bread. When they are in the wilderness, manna falls from heaven, which means what is it? It's like bread, and it provides sustenance for the Israelites as they wander. Jesus knows that they do not live by bread alone, but by the word that comes from the mouth of God. And who is the word? It is Christ. And this is fascinating. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city. What is that? We're going to assume Jerusalem. It's not identified. And placed him on the pinnacle of the temple. The temple. The temple is in Jerusalem, so maybe... We can draw the distinction as much. Verse 6, saying to him, if you are the Son of God, again, if you're the Son of God, if you are God, throw yourself down, for it is written, Satan knows his Bible. <laughs> he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against the stone. Good text, Satan. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, again, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test little battle of wits going on, perhaps. A little uh, drilling in the text, seeing who can get to that verse first. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. Mountains are a fascinating thing 
in the ancient Near East. In the Gospel of Matthew, there are a number of mountaintop experiences. There's the mountaintop experience here at Christ's temptation. There's a mountaintop experience a little bit later on, Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. There's a mountaintop experience a little bit later on in Matthew when Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to the top of a mountain called the Mount of Transfiguration, and the heavens are revealed and the heavenly hosts are there, another mountaintop experience. And the last mountaintop experience is at the very end of Matthew when Jesus appears to them and comes down and some bow down and worship him and yet some doubt. And Jesus says, go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. These are all the mountaintop experiences in Matthew. These are important events in the life of Christ. He showed them all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Showed them all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Verse 9. And he said to him, all these, all these what? People? All these kingdoms? All these blades of grass? All of these, whatever, I'll give you if you will fall down and worship me. This is the third and final temptation that Christ is going to face, the one that we're going to dive in deep today. The third temptation is that Jesus is taken to a high place, a mountain, and he is offered power. He is offered power. We've been sitting with Henry Nowen, who was a priest. Uh, He's since deceased, and he had the opportunity to sort of leave academia. He had a a pedigree of pedigrees, Harvard, Yale, Notre Dame, all these beautiful places. And he went, and he uh, went to a place called La Arc, which was a, a community for people with intellectual disability. And there he was their priest. He sat at their feet, he gave sermons, and he had a very interesting experience in that because it was so unlike anything he had ever done. If Christ's third temptation was for power, now an experienced power when he was at huge prestigious universities, and now he was sort of relinquishing power, and he writes describing his experience with that. He says, let, let me tell you now about a third experience connected with my move from Harvard to Arc. It was clearly a move from leading to being led. Somehow I had come to believe that growing older and more mature meant that I would be increasingly able to offer leadership. In fact, I had grown more self-confident over the years. I felt I knew something and had the ability to express it and be heard, and that sense it felt sort of, I felt more and more in control. But when I entered my community with those with intellectual disability and their assistance, all controls fell apart. And I came to realize that every hour, day, and month was full of surprises, often surprises I was least prepared for. When Bill, a person in his community, agreed or disagreed with my sermon, he did not wait until after Mass to tell me so. (laughs) Logical ideas did not receive logical responses. Often people responded from deep places in themselves, showing me that what I was saying or doing had little, if anything, to do with what they were living present feelings and emotions could no longer be held in check by beautiful words and convincing arguments and slideshows. When people have little intellectual capacity, they let their hearts, their loving hearts, their angry hearts, their longing hearts speak directly and often unadorned. Without realizing it, the people I came to live with made me aware of the extent to which my leadership was still a desire to control complex situations, confused emotions, 
and anxious minds. I wonder if our leadership is just an attempt to control. And this raises a question for me. I wonder if it raises a question for you. What does good leadership look like? If our leadership is often just sort of this growth out of a desire to control things, what does it mean to cut that off and relinquish it and say, let me lead like Christ? It's not seizing power for the sake of power, certainly not. So if we look to Jesus for guidance, who is Jesus being led by? Do you remember verse 1? We think we know the text. Jesus, being led by the Spirit, was led into the wilderness. Now one says that Jesus has a different vision of maturity. It is the ability and willingness to be led where you would rather not go. And this is the rub, is it not? Because where does the Spirit lead Jesus? To the wilderness? Nobody wants to go to the wilderness. <laughs> it is not the place you want to be led. Uh, no thank you. Uh, I'm going to go somewhere else. This is the rub. When you allow the Spirit to lead you, it takes you places you don't want to go. It takes you to places you don't, you're not equipped for. It takes you to places that you are utterly terrified of. It leads you into unknown and uncharted areas of life and experience. And you're left saying, oh dear Lord, do not send me there to those people to do that thing. Anything but that. And so if we are to be led by the Spirit, how do we go about doing that? If this is the rub, if we are to truly be led by the Spirit, how do we go about getting into the mindset in which we open ourselves up to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives as individuals and here in this community as Chapelwood? How do we open ourselves up to the Spirit? Well, now and once again has some good advice. Again, I encourage you to pick up one of these books and read along with us, or take it home and catch up. Uh, this is on page 85. He says, What then is the discipline required of a leader who can live with outstretched hands, anticipating where the Spirit will lead? I propose here the discipline of strenuous theological reflection. Just as prayers keep us connected with the first love, and as confession and forgiveness keep our ministry communal and mutual, so strenuous theological reflection will allow us to discern critically where we are being led. And he's going to start preaching, and here y'all go. Few ministers and priests and lay folk think theologically. Most of us have been educated in a climate in which the behavioral sciences such as psychology and sociology so dominated the educational milieu that little true theology has been learned. Most Christian leaders today raise psychological or sociological questions even though they frame them in scriptural terms. Real theological thinking, which is thinking with the mind of Christ, is hard to find in the practice of the ministry. Without solid theological reflection, future leaders will be little more than pseudo-psychologists, pseudo-sociologists, and pseudo-social workers. They will think of themselves as enablers, facilitators, role models, father or mother figures, big brothers or big sisters, and so on, and thus join the countless men and women 
who make a living by trying to help their fellow human beings cope with the stresses and strains of everyday living. This is the danger when we do not think theologically about God and about the Spirit, about where it's leading us. If we do not take the time to reflect on God and where the Spirit of God is leading us, we will fall to the temptation of trying to seize power and we will be ineffective in our calling and we will be ineffective in our ministry, not only as individuals, but as a church, as a whole. If we miss the boat here, we got some big problems. We got some big problems. The task of the future Christian leader is not to make a little contribution to the solution of the pains and tribulations of their time, but to identify and to announce the ways in which Jesus is leading God's people out of slavery through the desert to a new land of freedom. Folks, people outside these walls are hurting. They are longing to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So many of us here inside these walls are hurting, and we need the good news of Jesus Christ to come in and shape and form and change us. And what is required of us as we step out in faith is to listen to the Spirit of God. It is to be challenged to be led where we do not want to go. And what's before us is to be faithful to that calling. It's to listen to the Spirit. So when the Spirit says, go and do VBS out there, we say, I'm scared. <laughs> and the Spirit says, I'll be with you. And you say, are you sure? Are you sure you'll be with me? And then we go and we do VBS out there. When the Spirit calls us to adopt a partnership with the school, and we say, I, d I didn't even know that school existed. I've never been inside those walls before. I don't know those people. They don't look like me. I don't know their last names. Are you sure I'm supposed to go there? The Spirit quietly says, yes. And you go, I'm scared. And the Spirit says, I'll be with you. I'll guide you. I'll nurture you. I'll prepare you. Do you trust me? When the Spirit calls us to get on our phone and text that person you haven't talked to in three months because of the thing that happened at the dinner party, and you say, I'm scared, because what if they reject me? What if they don't like me anymore? What if I make them mad? And the Spirit says, don't worry, I'll be with you, I'll guide you. You say, I'll go where you lead, I'll follow. Because the temptation that Christ faced in that third temptation is to be powerful, to seize it all for himself. And what he realizes in that moment is that he's being faithful to the call of the Spirit. And that he's being led not only by, he's not being led by his own volition, by his own power. He's being led by the Holy Spirit. He has to listen for that in his voice. In his voice. And so friends, where do we go from here? What can we learn from now and what can we learn from Christ's temptation in the wilderness? Two things. First, temptation ain't going away. <laughs> uh, Martin Luther said that temptation is just like the birds flying overhead. It is all around us. It happens all the time. The three temptations that Christ faced in the wilderness are to be relevant, to be spectacular, and to be powerful. 
And the antidote to those, and the best way to combat those, is to be rooted in Scripture. As we heard Christ respond all that time with Scripture. And second, is to be led by the Spirit. The fact of the matter is that God's Spirit is alive and well. It's, it's moving us at times where we don't want to go. But we know that God is faithful. And as God provided for the Israelites in the wilderness, and God provided for Jesus in the wilderness, so too will God provide for us in our wilderness. And may it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.